Over the last four weeks, we have been celebrating this season as we've been in a series at Advent, remembering some of the important themes that surround this time of year. And in many Christian churches for many centuries, the church as it approached Christmas has been rejoicing in some of those themes over the four weeks leading up to Christmas, thinking about the concepts of peace and hope and joy and love. And so over the last three weeks, we have been doing that very same thing leading up to today. Three Sundays ago, I shared with you about Christ's coming and how that the advent, the arrival of Jesus is not just the arrival of the Messiah, the, ones, the one that the prophets had been looking forward to his coming for many centuries and predicting his coming. But in the coming of the Messiah, the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of peace. And the peace that Jesus brings is, as the scriptures reveal in the New Testament, a peace that surpasses our understanding. It is a, a peace, a a rest that we experience even in tumultuous times and difficult circumstances that we can't exactly explain where it came from, how we have it. But that peace is available to us in Jesus Christ. And it is a peace not only that surpasses our understanding, but it is a peace that comforts us at that soul level. It strengthens our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I think that every single one of us need that kind of peace, and not just those of us who know about Christ and understand the scriptures, but those around us, uh, you know, when we're at work or school or just in our neighborhood, wherever we are, every single person that you know is desiring that kind of restful peace. And that becomes all the more clear to us when we see in the news media or social media all the things that are happening around the world, especially when there are conflicts like have been happening for the last couple of years in Ukraine or those which have been happening for the last several months over in the Middle East. When we see these things, we are realizing afresh and anew how much we desire at a very deep level that hostility and enmity and war would be done away with. And what Christ brings to us is that kind of peace. That's why he is referred to by the prophet Isaiah in that predictive passage that you find on Christmas gifts as the, or Christmas cards as the Prince of Peace. He is the ruler and Prince of Peace. And that concept of peace in the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, the, the word is shalom. And it doesn't only speak of the cessation of violence. It also, as I shared three weeks ago, speaks of total universal human wholeness and fullness. One Christian philosopher, a guy by the name of Cornelius Plantiga, he wrote that shalom is universal flourishing wholeness and delight. It is the way that things ought to be. And when we see all the chaos that happens in the world, there is something in us whether you are a believer in the Bible or not, that says this is not the way it ought to be. When you hear about a person who has died young or you see wars happening or all kinds of different conflict, in us is this recognition, this is not how it ought to be. And in that, there is this desire for the coming of the peace of God that is spoken of in the scriptures. The Prince of Peace, he is the one who brings an everlasting peace. The promise of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9-6 is that our Lord, our Christ Jesus, he will establish a kingdom. And when Jesus came in the Gospels, as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, he is constantly preaching what is called the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He uses those things interchangeably. And so he is 
preaching about the coming kingdom, and we look forward to the coming kingdom, and of the increase of his government, his rule, and his peace, the scriptures say in Isaiah chapter 9, there will be no end. So God, in Christ Jesus, brings us peace from God, and Jesus brings us peace with God. We who once were in conflict with God, Jesus makes it possible for us to have peace with God. And then once we have peace with God, we are given the peace of God because now we are in a relationship with the God of peace. This is what you find when you read through the scriptures. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, he said this, when we were still without strength at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, and by his death, you and I have been justified. That is, we have been made right with a holy God. We were once in opposition to him, but we've been made right with God, justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does he make it possible for us to now be joined back together with God, to live life in connection with God, but now we have the opportunity to be joined together with one another. Because of sin, in the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, there is a separation between God and man, and there's a separation between human beings, that we are disconnected from one another. But in Christ Jesus, we are reconciled back to one another. Paul speaks about it like this in the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, Jesus is our peace who has made both one, he's joined them together and he's broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his body, in his flesh, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, thus making peace. Jesus reconciles you and I to God and to one another. In Christ Jesus, the Prince of Peace makes peace and makes it possible for us to be joined together with one another. It is an awesome and wonderful thing that Jesus does. So when we celebrate Advent, when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating that reality, the peace that every single person you know is desperately desiring and looking for. That is found only ultimately in Jesus Christ. And then once we have peace from God and peace with God and the God of peace, we have a relationship with him once again, that renews or gives to us a great hope, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And the hope that is promised to us in Jesus Christ, that the coming of Jesus reminds us of, is, as the scriptures declare, a hope that does not disappoint. Now, in saying that, all of us have at some point or another had our hope in this world and the things of this world shattered. The things we hoped in did not come to pass. You probably even have a memory of this when you were a child, when you were a kid. There was something you so desperately hoped for as a Christmas gift. And you even maybe had the wish book catalog. Do you guys remember the wish book catalog? And maybe you would go through the wish book catalog and you would circle things and then you'd like highlight them and just leave it in a place where your mom or your dad might find it and maybe see that, oh, that's that what you want. And you hinted at it and you really, really wanted the thing and then you woke up on Christmas morning and didn't get it. Your hope didn't come through. Why? Because that was a wishful thinking kind of hope. And those kind of hopes often fall apart in this world. But the scriptures speak of a hope that is sure and steadfast. The author of the book of Hebrews says that this kind of hope that we are given in Christ Jesus is an absolute certainty and it is like an anchor for our soul. And that soul is that part of you that experiences worry, anxiety, and fear, and depression, and all those sorts of things that people are wrestling with a lot more in our culture than they you know, maybe should or ought to, but we see it in our culture in such a huge way. So many people wrestling with that. The hope that we have in Christ Jesus is a hope, Romans chapter 5 says, that does not disappoint. 
We've all been disappointed by hope and things in this world because the things of this world are not enduring or steadfast, but Christ Jesus is enduring and steadfast. And so hoping in him gives us a hope that does not disappoint. And as a result of this hope that does not disappoint, that is a sure and steadfast hope, we have ultimate comfort. We have an anchor for our soul. And that increases in our lives, what we talked about last week, it increases joy. And the joy that the scriptures predict or promise that is accessible to us in Jesus Christ is a joy that endures on into eternity. We begin to experience it as we come to know salvation in Jesus Christ, and we begin to comprehend it more fully as we abide in him, as we walk with him and we get to know him in his word, and we begin to abide in his word and his word abides in us, and then we begin to abide in his love by living out his word and doing the things that his word commands or calls us to. We experience a experience a joy that is growing or increasing unto abundance and that lasts forever. Now, all of the happy experiences that you can have in this life, they, they have a beginning point and they have an end point. They don't continue on and on and on for a very long time. And, and the fact that they have an end point is what causes despair and depression for so many people. And sometimes people even get depressed before they experience any joyful happenings or happy things because they go, well, it's not going to endure. It's just going to, it's going to end. And so in this life, we all recognize that the joy, the happiness that we could experience in this life, it, it doesn't go on forever. And so that can lead to despair. But the, the joy that is promised to us in Jesus Christ is a joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. I'm on a group text with a group of pastors who are friends of mine all over the country, and uh, one of them this last week sent a text in that group text, and he said, I'm going to be teaching on joy this Sunday today. He's in Florida teaching on joy. And he asked the group of pastors, how would you guys simply define joy, the, the joy of the Christian? And so I sent this to him as I'd been already thinking about it, and I taught on joy last week. And so I said, joy is the deep abiding sense of contentment in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. And I just want you to think about this for a moment. The deep abiding sense of contentment in Jesus. That word contentment, that's hard for me. And maybe it's hard for you as well, especially living in the culture that we live in. We live in a market-driven culture. We all know this. And the market-driven culture is driven to make you to realize or think that you don't have what you really want, right? Everything in this commerce-driven, market-driven economy is focused at you, all the advertising, to make you feel like you're lacking something that would be, you would be much happier and your life would be much better if you just had this thing. Now, you already have that thing, but you have the old version of that thing. And if you just had the new version of that thing, are you guys following me? You all know that? Okay. Our culture is is driven to make you feel like you have a lack. Even though you don't really have a lack, it makes you want to, to, to feel like, if I just had that thing, I'd be happy. And then we get that thing, and we're not happy, and we're especially not happy when we get the bill for that thing. And we realize that we're going to be paying for that thing for many payments plus interest, and it costs far more than we thought it was going to cost. And then as soon as we get that thing, three days later, a new version of that thing comes out, and we realize that I should have waited just a few days, and then I could have gotten that thing. So we're never happy. Contentment is really difficult. Paul the Apostle wrote about this in his letter to the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians, my favorite book in the scriptures. And in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I know what it's like to abound, to have a lot. 
And I know what it's like to be abased or have nothing. And then he says this, I have learned in whatever state I am in, even if that state is California, to there, to therewith be content. I've learned to be content. Now, he's much further along than I am because I'm still trying to learn to be content and I wrestle with that. But he says something in that passage that I think is so key and important. And it's a verse that many people take out of context. In Philippians chapter four, verse 13, as he's talking about contentment, I, I know what it's like to have a lot and I know what it's like to have nothing. Now he wrote this when he was in prison facing possible execution. So he knows what it's like to have nothing. I've learned to be, with Ken, uh, to be content. And then he says this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what is the context of that? Now, a lot of people take it out of context. That, you know, it's like the football player getting ready to go play a big game. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And all the Christians go, look, he quoted a Bible verse. Yes, he did, totally out of context. What I need God's strength for is to be content. And I'm not in and of myself. But joy, what is it? I got a little hung up there. I was supposed to give the definition. Joy is the deep and abiding sense of contentment in Christ, which gladdens the heart and rejoices the soul. To be content is a joyful place. To be totally satisfied and not feel a want for anything. Paul says, when he's in prison, I've learned to be content. It gladdens the heart, rejoices the soul. In and by Christ, this joy is increasing unto abundance for eternity. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, says the fruit of the Spirit is love, and the second one is joy. It is the evidence of God's presence by His Spirit in my life that He gives me this inner sense of contentment that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. It is independent of external circumstances. That's an awesome reality. That means that you can be in the midst of troubling difficulty and still have this joy. Whereas the happiness that this world gives is totally based on external circumstances. It is independent of external circumstances. It is rooted in God's love, his grace, and salvation through Jesus Christ. And in Christ Jesus, we have access to fullness of joy. Jesus said, I have spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. As we begin to abide in God's word, learn who Christ is, learn what he's done for us and through us and in us, then we begin to experience a joy that is full and it's not the kind of joy that this world can give. And when we have this joy based on an absolutely certain hope and the peace that God has given to us, we can rejoice with great rejoicing and joy in Christ Jesus. Now, I hope that all of these things are just like another reminder of the same thing you've heard over and over and over again. And I hope that when I share these things every year as I do, they're an encouragement to you. They're certainly an encouragement to me, but I recognize that it's totally redundant and totally repetitive, and I'm perfectly fine with that. There's nothing new or novel in this. This is what Christian ministers have been sharing with the church this time of year, every year for centuries. And I'm going to keep saying the same things over and over and over again. And as the Apostle Peter says in one of his letters, it's good that I remind you of these things, even though you're established in the present truth. And I hope you are established in these things, that you know this so well, that in Christ you have a joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity, and that in him you can have fullness of joy, and you have the peace of God that surpasses understanding and peace with God in Jesus Christ, and the God of peace is in 
relationship with you, and I hope that you understand what hope is in, in difference to what the world can give and hope that is absolute and certain in Christ. I hope you know all of this, and every single time I say it, you are like, to the point of mocking me when I say it's joy increasing unto abundance for eternity, which I've said like a thousand times in the last 10 years, I hope you get to the point where you're like, oh, he always says the same thing. I, um, for a number of years, someday I'll get around to this because I just don't have the kind of time that I wish I did, but I own the website lineuponline.com, and eventually I'm going to put all my teaching notes and stuff up on lineuponline.com. Now, those words, line upon line, they're taken from the prophet Isaiah, who lived 2,800 years ago, and they were used originally as a, a phrase of derision aimed at Isaiah by the people who didn't like him, and, and it's found in Isaiah, I think, 28. And there in Isaiah 28, the people would mock Isaiah in his day because they, they didn't like him. There was a group of people that did not like the prophet Isaiah because he was always predicting hard things for them. So they would mock him and say, oh, Isaiah, he always says the same thing over and over. If we were to use, actually, I can't even say like modern language. I was going to say like a, like a skipping record, but like nobody knows what that is anymore. So, um, <laughs> but... It's just over and over, they, they, they mocked him saying, when Isaiah, when he speaks to us in the original language, it says, line, 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 precept, 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 precept. And they just mocked him. He's like a redundant, repetitive machine over and over and over again. Line, 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 precept, 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 precept. And then Isaiah said, I'm, I'm basically going to wear that as a badge of honor because God's word is to you as line, 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 precept, 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 precept. We need to hear things over and over and over and over again. Every parent knows this because you had to say things over and over and over and over again. Don't hit your sister. Don't hit your sister. Don't hit your sister. Don't. It's like on repeat, Right. Why do we have to say these things over and over and over and over again? Because maybe we have thick, thick heads. I know I do. But we need to hear it constantly. And so we need to be reminded of these things, even if we are established in the present truth. The key to unlocking fullness of joy, a hope that does not disappoint, a peace that surpasses understanding, is Jesus Christ. And when we celebrate Advent, hopefully these are the things that we understand. Fullness of joy, a hope that does not disappoint, and a peace that surpasses understanding. And if this was an infomercial, this would be the point at which I would say, but wait, there's more, right? So that's right, order now, but you don't even need to do that. Just turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. So Romans is in the New Testament, uh, last third of your Bible, right after the book of Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans chapter five. I've gone back to this passage every single week for the last few weeks because these concepts, joy, peace, hope, and now love is what we're gonna talk about today. They're all found in this very, very important passage of scripture. Hope, joy, peace, and love. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul there says, therefore, having been justified by faith. That word justified simply means, this big theological word that means that you and I have been made right with a holy and righteous God, even though we are not right in and of ourselves with a holy and righteous God. We all have fallen short of God's glory. We all have sinned. And the wages of sin, as the book of Romans says, the wages of sin is death. That is our only ultimate outlook apart from the outside work of Jesus Christ. 
But you having been justified, made right with God by faith, now we have peace. There's that concept of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also, through Jesus, we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. There's that word joy and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. We are rejoicing in God's coming. Now, before you were justified, you were not hoping for the coming of God. Because I know a few years ago, I saw this billboard. I don't think it was the best billboard, but it said, Jesus is coming, and boy, is he angry. I think, well, okay, maybe you might be able to make a case for that, but that's not exactly how I would be leading with this. But, but that, that, if you're not justified, if you're not made right with a holy God, you should be fearful. And, and maybe like me, when I was in 10th grade, I had to read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in my 10th grade English class in a, you know, regular high school, public high school. And, and what was that all about? Well, Jesus is coming and boy, is he angry. And you should be really fearful. And Jonathan Edwards, his whole thing was like, I'm going to hang you over the fires of hell and scare you to death so that you don't go there. That was his, his aim there. Jesus is coming and boy, is he angry. And apart from the justifying work of Jesus, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. And you rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You're looking forward to his coming. We rejoice, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Who, who is happy or rejoices in difficulty and hard circumstances, we glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And this hope does not disappoint, verse 5. You will not be disappointed if you hope in God because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. There's all of those concepts, peace, hope, joy, and now love. Verse 6, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified and made right with God by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Before he justified us by his death, burial, and resurrection, which we are going to rejoice in when we get to Resurrection Sunday in about three months. Before that... We were under the wrath of God. All we had to look forward to was the wrath of God, and nobody looks forward to that with joy and rejoicing. But now we have been saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In and by Jesus Christ, we have hope, peace, and joy. And point number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus is and brings the love of God to a dark and dying world. This is what this season is all about. It is my hope that you know this. That you know this so much that it's like, why do you keep saying the same thing every single Sunday? I, I hope I'm saying to this to the point where you're like, gosh, line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. I want you to be established in the present truth, and then I'm going to remind you still. This is what Christmas really is all about. 
I heard, you know, some of you guys may see this guy from time to time. He shows up the little short videos of Bill Maher and his politically incorrect show or whatever it's called. I don't even know what it's called anymore. And he was ranting about, you know, the guy's an atheist and he doesn't really like Christians. Really, he's a hate theist. He just doesn't like God. And, you know, somewhere along the line, he got injured by, you know, something didn't go right the way that he thought it was going to go. And now he doesn't like God. So he, he just waxes, not so eloquent, just, just kind of like a jerk most of the time, about how much he doesn't like God. And so he was mocking Christians for believing in Christ this last week. And his big thing on his show was, well, don't you know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th? And it's like, you know what? I don't know a single Christian pastor theologian that will argue that Jesus was born on December 25th. I don't argue that. I've never said that. I don't know that he was born on December 25th. I don't care if he was born on December 25th. What are the odds? Well, they're one in 365. That's really what it is. It's not very high. But whether or not he was born on December 25th, it just does does not matter. That's not the point. We're celebrating what his coming to this world brings, and we know with certainty, historically, every historian will agree to this point. Even those who are skeptical that Jesus is Christ and rose from the dead, even those who are skeptical about Jesus will argue that he is a historical figure who was born about 2,000 years ago and lived in what we know of as Judea today. Every single skeptical historian will argue that point. Probably the greatest, most well-known skeptical historian is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman has actually written a book against those who believe that Jesus is a myth. I don't care that he was not born on December 25th or that he was. The whole point is that he came. And when he came, what did he come to do? He came to justify you and me to give us peace with God, hope in God, and joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. And where does that come from? Well, it all is founded upon and based in the love of God. I think it's without a doubt the most famous verse of the Bible, certainly the most translated verse of the Bible, is John 3.16. Many of you know it without having tried to commit it to memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the basis of my hope and joy and peace in God? It all is based upon the love of God in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did Jesus come into this world? Why Christmas? That's the question that I wish we could have asked when Nick and I went out on Black Friday a few weeks ago to try and find Christmas shoppers at all the different retail establishment, but there were no Christmas shoppers because everybody shops online or they just don't have any money. And my question when I would go out in the past and do this and we'd record these and I'd say to people, are you here to buy any Christmas presents this year? And they'd say, yes, we're here to buy some Christmas presents. I'd always lure them in. I'd say, can I have five minutes of your time and I'll give you a $5 gift card to Starbucks? And most people don't want to give you their time until you go, I'll give you $5 at Starbucks. And they go, sure. And I'd say, so you celebrate Christmas? And they say, yes, I celebrate Christmas. And I'd say, why? And then they'd give me this stunned blank look and not really be able to give much of an answer. And many times the answers that they would give were quite comical. That's why we would record them. But why? Why did Jesus come to the world? He came because of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To drive this point, if you have your Bibles open to Romans, turn to the right, you're going to find that you pass First and Second Corinthians and then Galatians and then Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Again, a passage we frequent 
here at Cross Connection Church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Again, Paul is writing here, and he says, And you, he made alive. Who's the he in this passage? Jesus. He made you alive who were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom you used to walk with this group of people in sin, among whom you also were once, you once conducted yourselves in the lusts or the desires of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of your flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. In times past... Before you trusted in Christ, you walked in sin, and you were exposed to the coming wrath of God. That was your only expectation, the coming wrath of God. And then look at these two opening words of verse 4, beautiful words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together by Christ, or with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might reveal or show to you the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of his great love, even when you were dead in trespasses and sins, God redeemed and saved you because of his great love. And it is because of his great love that we can have peace with God. And we can have hope in God. And we can have joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. And this great love is not just something God does, but it, it has to do with his very nature. It is who he is. God is love. And Jesus is God incarnate, which means in the flesh. Therefore, Jesus is love incarnate. Point number two, Jesus is love incarnate. His coming to the world is the embodiment of love. And that love is expressed and then demonstrated in what he did, which we'll celebrate in three months. He is the demonstration of love. 1 John 4, some of you know this pretty well because you either grew up in kids' ministry in a church or you served in kids' ministry in a church. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who loveth not Knoweth not not God, for God is. I see you know that. If you don't know that, you need to register to help out with children's ministry, and we need your help, and I'm going to twist your arm in the new year to do just that. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John goes on in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested or revealed toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the payment, the propitiation for our sins. These words are so important. 
God is love. That is his very nature. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. Therefore, Jesus is love embodied in the flesh. And by this we know love. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. John says, by this we know love. You need to know this. And not only do you need to know this, that God is love, and Jesus is love embodied, and he demonstrated and expressed his love towards you by dying for you when you were at your lowest in sin so that he might reconcile you to himself and to one another in Jesus Christ. You need to know this yourself, and you need to share this with others. And I think it's so important that we know this ourselves because my experience has been in many conversations with many Christians over many, many years is that a lot of people doubt this reality that God actually loves them. Even Christians. A lot of Christians feel frequently like God kind of just puts up with them. And they question whether or not God actually loves them. A few years ago, I had a conversation with a friend of mine. She's a marriage and family therapist, and this was during all the COVID stuff in the last half of the year in 2020, a period of time many of us would like to forget. And we were talking, and I was asking how things were going with all of her work, and she said, it's been a really rough time. I have so many people, and uh, my schedule is just crazy with a whole bunch of people coming that have anxiety and worry and fear and depression, all these things. And, and many of you experienced some of that stuff in late 2020 as well. And I said, well, what, what are you finding? And she said, well, it's, it is the isolating reality of everything that's going on, but here's what I've discovered. People have a hard time sitting alone with their thoughts. I thought, that's kind of interesting. And why do people have a hard time sitting alone with their thoughts? Because many times when you or other people sit alone with your thoughts, you are reminded, whether it's your own internal monologue, or I think there might be a spiritual component to this, where the enemy also likes to come in and discourage us with this, where we are reminded of all the things that we thought and did and said that were just wrong. And we feel shame and we feel guilt. And I want to say shame and guilt are not necessarily a bad thing. If you did something wrong or said something wrong or thought something wrong, you should feel guilt and shame about that. But here's what that ought to do in Christ Jesus. It should drive us to the grace of Christ. Why? He loved you when you were still dead in your trespasses and sins. And conviction is a good thing. The conviction of the Holy Spirit of God drives us to run to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. And when we're sitting alone with our thoughts and you are distressed and depressed by all the things you thought, said, and did that you feel guilt and shame over, hopefully it drives you to come closer to God and say, I need your grace and your forgiveness. Because if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But many Christians doubt that God loves them because they say, well, you just don't know all the things I've done. And I don't want to know all the things that you've done. But God knows all the things that you've done and he still loves you. He still loves you. And a lot of people live not under the conviction of the Holy Spirit leading to confession and the receiving of God's grace and forgiveness, but they live under condemnation, which drives, drives them to isolate from other people and from God. I can't go to church because you don't know all the bad things I've done. Well, listen, this church is not full of perfect people. I mean, look around. This is like... We're an imperfect church. I mean, not John, of course, but the rest of us. If you think you found a perfect church, you didn't. And you just made it more imperfect by coming. 
We're all in desperate need of God's love and his grace. And Jesus is love in the flesh, incarnate. You need to know this. That's why it's good to be reminded of these things. And when you begin to grasp this and understand this, it increases your peace and your hope and your joy. Not based upon your goodness, but upon his goodness and his love. And you need to share this with others. There is no greater gift that you could give to someone than to share the good news of the love, joy, hope, and peace that Jesus brings into this world and into our lives. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for others. 1 John 4, 7, I already read it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made flesh manifest for us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love others. That's the ethical imperative. If you've received God's love and his grace, what, how should you respond? What ought you do? We ought to love others. And how do we love others? Well, point number three, God's love for us compels us to love others. And one of the most loving things that you could do is to share the love of God with those people in your life. By sharing the good news of the gospel. Now, a week from tomorrow, or whatever your tradition may be, maybe a week from today on Christmas Eve, it's very likely that you're going to exchange gifts with people. Why do we do that? What's that all about? Where does that come from? Why is there this impulse in us to give to other people or to receive? Now, I think we all recognize receiving gifts is wonderful. We all like to receive a gift. We love that. But as life goes on and you begin to get a little bit more mature or you age a little bit, you realize that the, the scriptures or the, the words of Jesus are true from Acts 20 verse 35, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you find that it's a joyful blessing to give a gift to other people. So we love to receive gifts. We, we love to give gifts. But why do we do this? Where does this come from? I want to suggest to you the reason we have this impulse to give and receive gifts, which we do at Christmas time, is because we were made in God's image. And God is the greatest gift giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. He's the greatest gift giver. The reason you have this impulse to give and exchange gifts with people is because God made you in his image. In some marked way, you are like God in this. And may it be that the love of God that you've received as a gift would compel you to give gifts to others. So probably you're going to exchange gifts at Christmas. And that's wonderful. I think that's great. If you want to give a gift to someone, give a gift to them. Now hopefully you can pay for it and you don't just put it on credit and try to maybe pay the bill some point in the future and pay a whole bunch of interest with it. But great, if you give them a physical, tangible gift, make sure you give them the greatest gift of the gospel. That's so much more important than something you can buy with one click on Amazon. So much more important. If you have experienced the love of God that has given you peace and hope and joy, make sure that you share it with others. 
May it be that God's love has been so poured out upon you, as Romans chapter 5 says, that it would begin to overflow from you to other people. Point number four, and I'll close with this. God's love is meant to be shared with others. It's meant to be shared. Now, wonderfully, before Jesus demonstrated his love towards us in his death on the cross, he gathered with his disciples just the night before he was crucified and he gave them a tangible way to remember the demonstration of his love that they could experience with many of their senses, touch, sight, smell, the sound of it, the, the taste of it through communion. And we're going to partake of communion today, the bread and the cup of communion. And we do this regularly here at Cross Connection about every seven weeks. We partake of the bread and the cup of communion where we remember his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, all as a demonstration of God's love. And Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me, which we'll look at in just a moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He told them to do this so that they would remember in a very tangible and sensory way God's love. So I'm going to invite Anthony and the worship team up and they're going to lead us in a song that reminds us of what God has done so that we can remember what he's done for us and rejoice in it. And while they're leading us in this song, I encourage you to sing, but our ushers are also going to bring these. If you don't have this, if you didn't get this when you came in this morning, they'll bring these and then we will partake together. So just hold on to it and we'll partake together in a few minutes after we have distributed these. God, I pray that you would help us to focus our hearts and our minds upon you and what you did for us. The, the words of this song are going to direct our attention to what you've done for us and the passage of scripture that we've looked at and are going to consider in just a moment reminds us of what you've done for us. All of this is a demonstration of your love and the bread that we're going to partake and the juice that we're going to drink. All of these things are intended to remind us of your love. And I pray that we would be so encouraged and strengthened by it that in some, maybe even just small way, it would increase our joy and our hope and our peace and our love enough to share it with other people. Because there are so many people that we interact with on a regular basis who are in desperate need of your peace and your hope and your joy and most greatly of your love. God, stir us by your spirit to be bold and to share these things with others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. In the same manner, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Lord, in a very simple way, you have given us something sensory and tangible to remember what you've done for us. Your love demonstrated 
and your body broken and your blood shed for us. All of this, Lord, is an expression and demonstration of your love. All of it is essentially necessary so that we could have peace with you and hope in you and joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. And Lord, as we celebrate this holiday, as we celebrate Christmas a week from tomorrow, I pray that you would keep these things on our minds and in our hearts. And in some opportunity this week, would you challenge each of us to share this reality with with someone? Maybe multiple someones, but at least someone, Lord. We thank you, Father, for the gift that you've given to us because of your great love. We rejoice in you. We thank you for your goodness.